0: Well, good morning. Thanks for joining us for week two in this series going through the book of Revelation. It is a uh, intimidating series to go through a book like Revelation because as we talked about last week, and, and if this is your first time jumping in, as soon as we're done this morning, you may wanna go back and watch next week. But as we said, uh, or last week, as we said last week, it's you know a very confusing book sometimes with all the symbolism and imagery and, and, and events that are yet to happen, some that have already happened. It's just a little, confusing. So what we want to do in this series is really just kind of narrow the series down and look at what are what are the big points of Revelation. And we ended last week by saying the big point of Revelation is that Jesus is going to win. No matter what this life brings, no matter what comes, no matter what tomorrow holds, we know that in the end, Jesus is going to be victorious. And so we're going to kind of continue pushing along that in the weeks to come, looking more at Jesus who he is, how he is revealed to us in this book. Uh, But today, we're going to narrow in uh, really right where we left off last week. We're going to still be in chapter one. It's not going to be where we pick up every single week right where we left off. But this week, we're going to pick up right where we left off. And what we're going to see is that the seven churches that we talked about last week, that John is writing the letter of Revelation to, these seven churches are actually going to receive a specific message for each of them from Jesus himself. And that's a pretty incredible thought just in and of itself, that these seven churches, these seven local bodies of believers are going to have a specific message that Jesus dictates to John and says, tell this to these churches. And in these messages, he's gonna commend them. In these messages, he's going to correct them. And in these messages, he's going to challenge them. And these messages for them are also still relevant for us today. It turns out that these seven churches we're gonna look at today really embody every major issue that the church has dealt with and struggled in every age and in every cultural setting. And so what we're gonna see today, and I'm really excited about it, is that in this initial revelation... This initial revelation that there is only one way that we are going to overcome whatever cultural situation we find ourselves in, and that is by having a clear vision of the one who shepherds us along the way. And I love that, right? That's a great reminder of why this book is not called Revelations of Events That Are to Come. This book is called Revelation because it is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And I think it's so easy when we look at this book to look at all the future events that are listed therein and lose the focus of the book. And that is seeing Jesus more clearly. Clearly. And so I'm excited today to really dive into that and see Jesus in a fresh and a new way, uh, because really, and we again said this last week, is that Revelation is just as much about where you are in the present as it is about what's to come in the future. Now, I know that seems really counterintuitive, especially if this is your first week watching. But yes, we want to look at the future, but so that we can see the present better. When we see the present in light of the future, it helps us see the unseen realities that are going on around us all the time. And the main thing that we need to see is the presence of the risen and glorified Jesus is the greatest unseen reality of the present today. So last week we said that Jesus, uh, that in Revelation, Jesus promises us hope for tomorrow and strength for today. And what we're going to see this week is that that promise is fulfilled in the specific person of Jesus Christ. Not just that Revelation promises hope for tomorrow and strength for today, but that Jesus himself is strength for tomorrow and hope for today. So if you got your Bibles open, we're going to jump right into Revelation chapter 1. We're gonna pick right up where we left off in verse number nine. And so let's read that a little bit together. So Revelation chapter one, verse nine says this, says, I, John, remember he's our author writing this letter, Right where we left off last week, the apostle John, who has been exiled because of his faith in Jesus that ran diametrically opposed to the Roman government of the day, has been exiled from the churches and believers that he knows and loves to live a life of servitude on an island of Patmos. And while they're on Patmos, he is visited by the risen Lord Jesus, and Jesus doesn't say, "Hey John, write down these events that are going to happen thousands of years in the future so that when we get thousands of years in the future, the people who were alive then will know what's going on. No he, Jesus tells him, says, "Hey, write this letter to these churches today." This is a quote uh, from a commentator, Daryl Johnson, and I think it's fantastic. He says that the fundamental conviction of apocalyptic literature is that things are not as they seem. There is more to reality than meets the unaided senses. There is more to the reality of the present moment than we can know with our eyes and ears. And so what Jesus is giving John here in Revelation chapter 1 verse 9 is an unveiling of this unseen reality of the present. It's the first breakthrough where Jesus steps in and says, John, let me show you what's really going on. So let's go through that today and let's see what Jesus specifically showed John here in chapter one and really going all the way to the end of chapter three. And the first thing that John saw is pretty incredible. So continue reading in verse 12. He says, this is John. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man So there's the revelation that we know and are often intimidated by. It's full of imagery and it's full of symbolism. But here's what's cool. These very first symbols that we see in Revelation, we know exactly what they are and exactly what they mean. Not because we're super smart and have some hidden and secret revelation, but because by the end of chapter one, Jesus is gonna tell us exactly what these main symbols that John sees are. See, when John hears the voice and he turns, He sees some things that he may think are out of place on the Isle of Patmos. He sees seven golden lampstands, and then he sees seven stars. Well, we're going to see when we get to verse 20 here in a little bit that those seven golden lampstands are actually the seven churches to whom John is addressing this letter. So each of those lampstands represented one of those churches, whether it was Smyrna or, or Thyatira or Sardis, it was representing those churches. And then the seven stars we hear again. Again, are going to be the seven angels of those churches. And we say angels of those churches, like, does that mean that it's, you know, an angel assigned to each local church? Well, maybe, but most likely that word angel just means the messenger for each of those seven churches, potentially even referencing the pastor of those seven churches as the one who was going to read the letter and give the message from Jesus to that church. But I think it's very comforting to me early on to see that these symbols, that Jesus is giving us, he lets us know what they mean. The ones that are really important, we know what they mean. Now there's some we don't. As we get deeper into Revelation, there's gonna be some symbols we just don't understand, but that's okay because our understanding of the point of Revelation is not dependent upon our understanding of every symbol in Revelation. But here in chapter one, we get off on the right foot by Jesus saying at the end of chapter one, hey, this is what these things are. Now, the other thing that John sees captures his attention far more than seven lampstands and seven stars. When John hears a voice and he turns, he sees Jesus. And I love how John describes Jesus there, that his hair was white like wool. His eyes were a blazing fire. His feet were a bronze furnace. Out of his mouth proceeded a double-edged sword. Just an incredible picture of Jesus. And John's description of Jesus proves one thing. As much as John tries, Jesus is just indescribable. The words elude John to capture the glory and magnificence and beauty of this risen Lord. And he reaches beyond words by describing his eyes uh, like fire, his hair like wool, his feet like a furnace to try and describe Jesus, but words fail him. That's where the imagery again comes in. And what's really interesting is that Jesus is often described this way. Matter of fact, I would challenge you, I'm not gonna give it all away, give you some work to do. Go in the book of Genesis, look at how Abraham describes seeing God in the flesh as God cuts a covenant with Abram. It's really interesting that John and Abram in the first book of the Bible and the last book of the Bible see pretty much the same thing. But anyway, what I wanna show you here, the main thing I want us to take away from what John saw is how that picture fits together. He sees the seven lampstands, which are the churches, and he sees the seven stars, which are the messengers of the churches, and he sees Jesus, but where is Jesus? See, when John sees Jesus, he sees Jesus in the middle of the churches. Now see, this is huge. Again, if you missed last week, you need to go back and watch it. Because when we understand the historical context that these churches were living in, when we understand the persecution that they were facing, when we understand how they had been cast off and cut out from the economic system of Rome for their faith in Jesus Christ, when we understand what they were going through, when John sees Jesus with them, it takes our breath away. I think it's so easy for us to think when we face hard times in life, when we're going through difficult and painful circumstances, that we're going through it alone. But the very first thing that John sees in the book of Revelation as he's writing a letter to churches who are facing persecution that we in America cannot even fathom, Jesus has not left them to the mercies of Rome. Jesus is walking in their midst. He had not left them by themselves. He was there. And so no matter where you are, no matter what you're going through, no matter how difficult life is or how painful it gets, I want you to know that Jesus is with you too. This isn't just something reserved for the church in Revelation. This is the truth and reality of the church in every generation since and every generation that is to come is Jesus has not left us. He is with us no matter what we face. So when John turns, he sees Jesus. So now let's move on. Not just what does he see, what does he hear? What does John hear? Look at verse 17. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and to Hades. Now, I love that when John turned and looked at Jesus, which by the way, get that in your head, he hears a voice like a trumpet, he turns and sees the resurrected Jesus. What does he do? John falls down face first like a dead man. Why would he do that? Because of what he saw when you uh, when you hear Jesus, you know we see John uh, and hear his description of Jesus. Don't think that you would be so proud and so brave that you would stand and reach out and shake his hand. No, the only appropriate response to turning around and seeing the resurrected Jesus is falling down on your face. But here's what happens next: He falls down on his face, and in a simple picture of humility and grace. Jesus reaches down. Jesus reaches down. He puts his hand on John. And John hears these words. Don't be afraid. I love that. Jesus, in all the grace in the the world, reaches down. I can just see it in my mind's eye. He puts his hand on John's shoulder as John is laying, trembling, face down in the dirt. And he whispers in John's ear and he says, John, don't be afraid. So why would Jesus have to say that? Why would he say, John, don't be afraid? Well, one, we can imagine because John was rightly terrified when he turned around. When we see the glory and splendor and holiness of Jesus as a sinful human being, there is some fear that floods our hearts. That's why we hear and read of the fear of the Lord being a common theme in the Old Testament. When we realize who God is in his holiness and who we are in our sinfulness, fear is an appropriate response. So that's why Jesus says, Hey, John, don't be afraid. But I think, secondly, and maybe more accurately, Jesus tells John, Don't be afraid because Jesus knew what John and these other believers were currently enduring under Rome. He knew their suffering, he knew their persecution. Get this, he knew their doubts. Have we been left alone? He knew their worries. Will this ever get any better? He knew their fears of losing their life and their freedom and their property. And here's the thing that I want you to understand. Knowing this, knowing their doubts, knowing their worries, knowing their fears, Jesus doesn't reach down and scold or chastise John. He encourages him. He says, John, don't be afraid. It's a powerful message. But I think it's why john could not be afraid the reason jesus gives john to not be afraid that is more important than the message of not being afraid well, what do i mean by that here's what i mean the reason that john or that jesus gave john to not fear is because jesus himself had already walked into the gaping jaws of the greatest enemy there is the enemy of death and he walked out the other side alive and victorious, Jesus doesn't tell John to fear not because John, you are you are going to get through this. Don't be afraid, John. Don't be afraid. You are going to have better days ahead, John. Don't be afraid. You are stronger and more important than you realize. That's not what Jesus says. Go back and look at the text. John doesn't tell, or Jesus doesn't tell John, don't be afraid because you are. He says, John, don't be afraid because I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and of Hades. Jesus doesn't tell John not to fear because you are. Instead of focusing on you are, Jesus tells him to fear not because I am. And that is so good, because too often, When we faced hardship in life, our first instinct is to look deep within ourselves and think, I've got this. I can handle this. I was built for this. My dad, my mom prepared me for this. Or maybe you think just the opposite. Maybe when life gets hard and life gets painful, you look deep within and say, I can't do this. I can't make it through this. This is too much for me. But whether your answer is I've got this or there's no way I've got this, either way, your answer is wrong. See, if we are truly gonna endure the the suffering and persecution and hardship that this enemy and this world are gonna throw at us, it doesn't start with looking within, it starts with looking at Jesus. If we are truly gonna learn to not be afraid, then it starts not with who you are, But with who Jesus is. And so then, seeing Jesus, what does John now write? Verse 19. Therefore, this is Jesus still speaking write what you have seen. What is, hey, there's the present, and what will take place after this? There's the future. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And then from there in chapter two in the beginning of chapter three, Jesus gives seven specific messages to these seven churches to which John records and writes down. And what this is, is like we said in the beginning, this is, you know, correction in some cases, condemnation, in some cases, celebration of who they are and what they've done. It's advice for them in their cultural moment, but I think more than that, it's also as you read each of these seven letters, which I would encourage you to do, it's advice for our church today. You see, these these words that Jesus gave were for these seven churches, but we are, are, are crazy if we don't think we can still learn from them where we are right now. And I think the main reason... That we can still learn from them now is because the greatest danger that was facing those seven young churches is the greatest danger that's still facing our church today, and that is not the power of Rome, but it's our own spiritual complacency. Now, we don't have time this morning to go through every one of the seven letters. I think you should take time to do that, but we don't have time this morning. But what we'll do is go back and look at the words of Pastor Matt Chandler. We've linked to his sermon series on Revelation on the website. But as he begins to talk about the letters to the seven churches, Pastor Matt does a good job of identifying three common threads throughout those letters that are really three big schemes that our enemy, the devil, uses against the church both then and still now. He identifies this in chapter two and three, these three strategies. Number one, he says that the scheme of the enemy is that churches would be spiritually knowledgeable, but cold. Number two, that churches would be spiritually aware, but indifferent. Number three, that churches would be spiritually weary and begin walking away. I think that's a really good overview of the letters to those churches. Now, there's one church, again, you do some homework, but one church that doesn't receive the condemnation, but really every other church is at least, it receives some condemnation or at least a gentle nudge in a different direction, and it's because they've fallen into one of these three traps. They're, they're spiritually knowledgeable. They have all the head facts, but their heart and love for the Lord has grown cold. There's churches that are spiritually aware of things that are going on, but they're just indifferent and not doing anything about it. And then there's churches that because of the persecution and hardship they've faced that have just gotten beaten down and become weary. And because of that weariness, they are now in danger of walking away. And see, here's what I want you to see. In these seven letters to these seven churches... In the three overarching schemes that Pastor Matt identifies, there is not the major threat coming from the outside. These are not outward threats. They are all inward threats. And that's what we mean when we say the greatest danger we face as the church today is not an outward threat, but it is an inward spiritual complacency. I love what my favorite pastor, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said about this. He said, beware of no man more than yourself. We carry our worst enemies within us. Man, that's good. You see, it's so easy for us to fall into the world's pattern of blaming all of our issues and all of our problems, our circumstances, our own circumstances and people that are on the outside. That's what the world tells us to do, right? If you're facing a hard time in life, it must be somebody else's fault. If you're struggling at work, it's because somebody else did you wrong. If you're enduring financial hardship, it's because life just isn't fair. And there's just all these outward circumstances that we blame our issues and problems on. And then the way that we overcome these is by looking deep within ourselves and rising above them and finding our inward potential. But see the book of revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ here offers us an entirely different picture. See our greatest problems in life start with us. Now I'm not saying there's not things in your life that are beyond your control that have went sideways. I get that. But I also know through experience and by being convinced from the word of God that I'm my own worst enemy. There are things that other people have done to me, sure, but the way that I have responded to them and in some cases, the way I have provoked them have made the situation far worse than they would have ever been. You see, I know and have become convinced that I am my own worst enemy. And the strength that I need to overcome these obstacles that I create, I can't find by digging deeper and trying harder. That's the well that got me into this problem in the first place but the way that I can overcome these is by looking to the one who holds both the future and the present in the palm of his hand. See, the world's got it backwards. Our problems aren't out there and our answers aren't in here. The problem that we all have is the sin nature that is in our very hearts. And the answer we need is only found in Jesus Christ stepping down from heaven, clothing himself in human flesh, dying on the cross as a sacrificial substitute for that sin, and by his gifted righteousness, making us right with God. That's where the answer needs, or the answer is. And see, I think that we get that when we get saved. Maybe if you've been a Christian for a while, you're like, yep, 100% agree with that. But then I think somewhere along the line, we kind of revert back into the world's lies of thinking, okay, now that I'm saved, all my other problems are out there, but all the answers are deep in here. And I would tell you what Paul told the church. Paul said, look, if you're gonna start the race this way, you need to keep finishing the race this way. If it started with Jesus, let it end with Jesus. So if we're gonna address those three schemes of the enemy that were attacking the church John wrote to in Revelation and are still attacking the church today, we need Jesus. Jesus to give us feet to stand instead of walking away. When we grow weary from the outward pressures of this world, we need to realize that the problem is not the pressure. The problem is our unwillingness to stand, but Jesus can strengthen our feet so that we may endure. See, we need Jesus to give us hands to serve instead of remaining indifferent. Our greatest problem is not a world with so many problems that we can't fix. Our greatest problem is that we are indifferent to the ones that we can. And we need Jesus to give us hands that would be willing to get dirty and do, and do, as Pastor Andy Stanley says, do for one what we wish we could do for everyone. And then we need Jesus to give us hearts of worship instead of being passionless and cold. Man, it breaks my heart when I see every week our churches full of people who are going through the motion, but their hearts are just not in it anymore. Man, we need Jesus to revive our hearts, to bring us a fresh passion for Him, who He is, what He's doing, and what He will do. And I think that has to start with seeing Jesus. So, my prayer today for you is exactly what John experienced thousands of years ago on the island of Patmos, that you would see Jesus in a fresh and a new way, not just as one who was sitting out there somewhere in the future waiting to return, but one who is in the midst of his church today, one who is risen from the dead, victorious over the grave and holds the keys of hell. That's who I want you to see. And I believe with all my heart that when we see him, that's when we are changed to be like him. That's when our passion grows and that's where we find hope for tomorrow and strength for today. Let me pray for you. God, I pray this morning as simply as I know how for those watching that you would help them to see Jesus, not just uh, who Jesus was and who he will be, but who he is today today. That he has not left us alone as orphans to suffer the hardships of this life and the schemes of the enemy, but that he is beside us every step of our journey. And that God, when we see him, our hearts would be ignited once again with passion for worship, with hands for service, with feet to withstand the attacks of the enemy and the pressures of this life. And so God, I pray for those who are watching, whether on the phone or their computer, whether with their family or by themselves. God, that they would see you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We have people who are here right now who would love to talk with you, who would love to pray with you, and who would love to help point you even more to Jesus. So if you're on Facebook, comment, send us a DM. If you're on the website, there's a button where somebody's ready to pray with you right now.